Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My name is Ansel Linder. This is Bitcoin and Markets. Today, I have a special episode, the first ever Bitcoin and Markets interview. <laughs> I got, had a chance to sit down with J.W. Weatherman, and we talked uh, about his uh, Bitcoin threat model. Uh, he's been doing a lot of great content in the space. He's become a member of the or co-host, panelist, uh, whatever they call themselves over there at Block Digest, my one of my favorite uh Bitcoin shows on YouTube now. They do great work over there. Um, he has started his own interview show um, under the microscope. And I think that's, he, he's interviewed a lot of great people in the space, foundational members, like pre-Bitcoin type people. And that is one of my areas of interest is looking at what exactly brought about Bitcoin, all, all the things that led up to Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, he's been doing some great stuff. He is unapologetically dedicated to Bitcoin's mission. And so, like I said, I had a chance to sit down with him and talk about this Bitcoin threat model. Now, in my opinion, the threat model is uh, there's a lot of learning condensed into a very short document. It's truly invaluable work, and it does deserve to be up there in a top five to ten things that you have to read if you're getting into Bitcoin. It adds professionalism to the space. So if we're trying to get professional investors and uh, professional developers of all kinds uh, into Bitcoin, then we need to have something like this where people can go and find all the threats that they need to be worried about in one spot. Without further ado, this is my interview that I had with J.W. Weatherman. Uh, enjoy. Welcome to the show, J.W. Hey, thanks a lot. This is uh, it's a pleasure to, to chat with you. First thing, I just would like to see what your background is. Like, what was the genesis of this Bitcoin threat model? Yeah, so I've been working in software security for 20 odd years, and uh, I really wasn't interested in Bitcoin until about six months ago. I had heard about it. Um, some colleagues had done done work with it, um, but I... I kind of lacked the economic knowledge until maybe a year or two ago um, when I kind of finished my my four year uh, deep dive down the rabbit hole of just Austrian economics. And uh, and I also just never really gave it the time that it it, uh, it deserved until about six months ago. Um, from a technical standpoint, I thought it was just like Linden dollars or, you know, SETI at home meets Linden dollars, something silly. So I, I really, you know, I had a lot of other projects going on and I use that as an excuse, but I really kind of kicked myself for not, uh, not having connected the dots and paid attention to this thing sooner. So about six months ago, I got really interested in it and, uh, and because uh, what I do is security design work, um, one of the first things that I did was start putting together at least a high level threat model of Bitcoin. And what that really is, is just a systematic um, analysis of all the different ways that you could break a piece of software and whether those would work or whether they wouldn't and what what uh, safeguards are in place to prevent that from happening. So I spent, uh, I don't know, probably six weeks working on that and published it um, and so that was like real time, like me falling down the rabbit hole, because by the time I was done with that doc, I believe that it was actually secure and the light bulb finally went off. That's awesome. It, it almost seems like when you read it, um, it reminds me of old, uh, Bitcoin talk posts and things where it's, it's almost a culmination of years of research into Bitcoin. And that's pretty incredible that you put it together in six weeks. 
Well, I mean, I was able to take advantage of uh, a lot of experience in software security and cryptography, and then take advantage of all the work that everybody else had been doing uh, when I wasn't paying attention. So things like the 51% attacks and things like that, I could just go read those old Bitcoin talk uh, mailing list uh, sort of stuff um, and just see you know the analysis that other people had done. Um, so not being the first made it a lot easier to, to do it in a real systematic way over a short period of time. But I think that's the, the real value of the document. Like I think almost all this stuff, uh, with the exception of some recent stuff that I added around, um, like insecure side chains and, uh, and possibly maybe a little bit on, uh, of just additional work that I did on, uh, proof of work change attacks. Um, certainly 98% of it is, it was out there, uh, far before I got involved, but having a real systematic, uh, holistic picture of all the ways that you could break this thing in one place, I think is valuable because if, um, you know, if I didn't have a doc like that, I, I wouldn't have an investment thesis around it, right? If I didn't think that, like, it is absolutely mind blowing that there's something that's digital and secure at the same time. Like, I think part of the reason I didn't get interest in Bitcoin sooner is that that's just so antithetical to everything I know about software and computer security that, you know, if it's digital, if it's online, if it's connected at all, um, you know, it's it's vulnerable, and uh, the best kind of computer security is physical security, right? So this this is definitely a paradigm shifting uh, kind of uh, innovation, and uh, um, so yeah, it, it I really had to have it all kind of in one place and and super organized in order to believe it. Well, to me, I mean, I'm not from that that industry or anything, anything, but it just seems like that would be something you need in place to become professional. Right. Like to take the next step for Bitcoin um, towards the professional investors and professional developers, even like, you know, the uh, to reach the masses of the developers, you'll need to have something like that. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd like to say that some of the more uh, some of the, the the better guys out there before they invested in something like any kind of a software startup, they would want to have a, a technical review. And the really hardcore guys might have a security review built into that, but um, but most of them wouldn't. Um, and I think e even uh, even now, I look at most of the institutional money that's that's chewing around the edges, and even you know even even guys. Um, I'm forgetting his name right now, but the guy that bought the uh, the Silk Road coins uh, is it Fred Wilson? Draper. Maybe? Draper. Tim Draper. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Um, you know, even guys like that, they are, they are, you know, I think the best of the best of kind of that big money that's coming into the space. And some of the stuff that they say sometimes it's just like, wow, they're, they're really, I, I, I don't know why you're investing in it. Cause if I believe that I, <laughs> I wouldn't be investing in it, but, uh, but no, I, I do think it's a good resource. Um, but I'm always surprised that, you know, the when you go from millions to billions, you don't necessarily uh, end up making way more sophisticated investment decisions. I, for example, I think he invested. Maybe, maybe I'm maybe I'm slandering the guy, but I think he invested in Crypto Kitties, didn't he? So, uh, either yeah, way, well, there, yeah, Horowitz you know, did, I think. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Well, yeah, he's he's another good example. I mean, uh, definitely a guy that has a lot of respect and deserves a lot of respect. So then you have to start thinking, how did he do it for some other reason? But um, but the the um, the track record of most VCs, even guys like Peter Thiel, 
they don't have that great of a track record uh, when it comes to investing in technology. It's like, it's maybe a little bit better than random chance. Uh, something you know, that's, that's an exaggeration, but it's not super, it's not as impressive as you would think it would be, you know, uh, not having looked into it. So yeah, I, I hope it's a resource that people find useful, but, um, but I realistically, I do think a lot of those investment decisions are going to be made, uh, for the wrong reasons and they're just going to be luckily right <laughs> or unluckily right right and well how about we get into some of the applied stuff so there do you see any glaring weaknesses in bitcoin right now or did we like how do you see 2017 into 2018 uh did 2017 patch a bunch of security holes by the the fork action that we had or do you see more glaring weaknesses going forward well actually you know what's what's kind of incredible about bitcoin is that it has been secure from maybe not day one, but very close to day one. It's it's a really brilliant design that allowed for a lot of little flaws to kind of be covered up uh, or at least not be critical flaws. Um, and I know that there's been a couple exceptions in the history where people had to do like emergency patches and that obviously wouldn't work now. Um, but we're talking really early when that sort of stuff happened. So um, it's got a really impressive track record, um, especially, you know, for somebody like me that's used to seeing stuff that's, uh, you know, even, you know, if you have a team of several hundred people, there's usually some critical issues over the years uh, that, you know, wakes you up in the middle of the night. And uh, the fact that this thing has just been running strong basically since it was created is pretty incredible. So looking back on 2017 and, you know, I wasn't there for most of 2017 or I wasn't paying attention anyway. Um, I, I actually don't think it was as big of a deal as, uh, and, and maybe it's because I didn't, experience it right i didn't experience the drama of it but looking back on it i don't think there was any way that bitcoin wasn't going to continue to exist and the secure version wasn't going to continue to exist so to kind of the way that i look at it is bitcoin existed there was an attempt to introduce a security flaw which was making dangerously large blocks um, the reason that would be a security flaw with bitcoin is it would it would tend to cause centralization and if you can get enough of the miners physically located in the same place then you start this um, sort of black hole effect, right? Like um, if there's a little bit of an advantage to being together, then that starts multiplying on itself to the point where you'd the, the, um, the market would tend to want to, or the profitability structure would tend to want to put everybody next to each other, right? And if that happens, the whole point of Bitcoin doesn't work because Bitcoin's designed to be resistant to physical attacks. Um, so if it all ends up in one place, then, you know, guys with guns can pull up in the parking lot and say, Hey, you know, do this. And whoever's running those machines is going to, is going to submit. So from my perspective, the, the, there was definitely an attempt to introduce a critical security flaw that would cause that outcome, right? If you make the blocks too big, then, then that's the inevitable consequence. And the part of the reason that I can be pretty confident that that was the intent, right? That it wasn't just a, a, a security flaw with a feature is that the feature that you get is so stupid, right? Like if you, if you walked into Facebook, you know, three years into operation and you said, Hey guys, I've, I've been working really hard. What I want to do is I want to change this critical security parameter. Now I think it's going to be okay, but it's really, really important. So if we screw it up, everything blows up, right? Like the, it's game over and we're going to get twice the capacity. 
you know, you'd just be laughed out of the room. Like no, nobody is working on, uh, you know, viral sort of social networks or anything that's expected to scale and getting excited about doubling, uh, doubling capacity. So it's, it's like the feature part is laughable, right? Because obviously you want to scale to visa like levels, uh, and way beyond that. Um, so that's why it's pretty easy for me to categorize that as just like, it's clearly motivated just to be an attack because you don't get, there's no benefit. It's not like there's really any sugar that goes along with that poison. Um, so from my, my perspective, looking back on it, it looks like that, that was a pretty, pretty impressive attack, right? Because almost every big company involved in Bitcoin was participating in it. And I think many of them willingly, right? Like they knew what they were doing, um, which is, I mean, gosh, if that happened in any other context, I would think it would be game over. But, but even looking back on that, it was inevitable that some miners were going to continue to mine the old chain and probably a decent percentage of them. And so the worst thing that really could have happened is you could have had like, let's say that 80% of the mining hash power uh, went to the new chain that has the security vulnerability. Bitcoin, like what I would call Bitcoin, would continue on because it would still have 20% of the hash power. Now, you could still be open to other attacks, and that would be unfortunate, right? Like the 80%, if they wanted to, they could switch over and screw with, uh, screw with transactions and overwrite history for some period of time. But even then, it would just... It would, it would basically be like, ah, this terrible attack happened and now you can't trust a Bitcoin transaction for a day. But with stuff like the Lightning Network and you know the potential of side chains, we still probably would have been okay there anyway. So it's really pretty incredible, as formidable as that was, that it didn't have the potential to do all that much, even if it had succeeded. Yeah, for a long time, um, I've been talking about this human attack vector versus the software attack vector. And you did a good job in the document breaking it down into those two categories. Um, uh, so like Bitcoin is the cryptography is sound, right? Um, the only the only place it can really be attacked, in my opinion, would be these kind of social engineering type attacks. So um, and that's what I kind of see 2017 as. Um, but early on, I saw the game theory uh, playing out where there's no way that you could hard fork and beat a at least a sizable um, minority on on the old chain. It just the game theory didn't work out. So uh, that's how I saw that. But what do you see going forward then? Do you see any glaring weaknesses in Bitcoin right now? Uh, no, actually, I mean, the sort of the executive summary of the threat model is that after looking at all of the ways that I could potentially try to break the software and not not just things that I came up with, but um, but things that, you know, everybody else has come up with, too. Um, and so far, we've added a couple things since I originally wrote it, but um, but they're they're. Uh, they're things that I came up with. So I feel like it, it I, I'm confident that it's pretty, it's pretty holistic. Um, and obviously I encourage everybody to read it, right? Check out uh, btcthreats.com. And if you can think of any way to bit, break Bitcoin that I haven't already documented, let me know and I'll add that. Cause that's the, that's the point of the doc is to be an open source sort of catalog of everything that could go wrong and, and what we're doing to make sure it doesn't. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I do break it down into technical threats and human threats just because it's kind of logical, you know, like sh threatening to harm a miner is a little bit different than trying to get a backdoor into mining software. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't think that those attacks are necessarily any more viable 
um, like they, they're, they're all, they're all possible, right? Like a security person is never going to say, oh, it's impossible, but they're, they're all very unlikely to happen in my opinion. And, uh, there's safeguards in place that make them very unlikely to happen. Um, so I feel very good about the state of Bitcoin security. The, the two threats that got added, um, since I published it six months ago are probably the two that I'm most worried about. But, you know, as a security person, if I'm not worried about something, like I just don't have anything to think about. So I got to be worried about something, um, are, uh, a proof of work change attack and an insecure side chains attack. I think those are the two most interesting ones and they're still in play. Now I think Bitcoin would survive it, but I think that they're, they're viable and they're things that I would probably do if I was a bad guy over the next year. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I'll have to, I, I don't think a proof of work attack is, is likely at all, but, uh, the side chain one, I've, I've heard you talk about that before and yeah, that is, um, somewhat concerning. Um, just have to keep our eyes peeled for the bad actors on that one. Um, for Bitcoin, I I've heard you say this before, cause they're after the fork and, and all this like Bitcoin, Bcash is Bitcoin. Um, and you've said in the past that Bitcoin is a mission. Right. right. Um, can you go into that a little bit and um, how that guides how you look at the space in general? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, so when you're doing a threat model, like if you're doing it for, uh, I don't know, Google and you were going to do a threat model of Google Docs, what you're going to look at is all of the bad things that could happen to users um, and all of the bad things that can happen to the data, um, all of the, all the things an attacker might do. And you're going to look at it from the standpoint of the shareholders, right? Because ultimately they own the company, they've invested in it and, uh, everything that every employee and consultant and expert is doing inside the company is to increase shareholder value. Right. Um, and in a, in a real, you know, free market, that is also going to mean serving the consumer. Uh, it doesn't always <laughs> anymore, but uh, but that that's the um, that's the perspective that you look at it with. So, like an attacker could break into the data center and destroy ten million dollars worth of hardware, right? And that matters because that would impact shareholders, right? Um, with an open source project, there are no shareholders. So you have to start with saying, okay, what are we trying to protect? Like, what is the, what is the thing that an attacker would be trying to destroy? It can't be shareholders because there aren't any. Um, it's not, you know, it's not employee paychecks. It's not like a great user experience necessarily. Uh, what, what is the thing that they'd be trying to destroy? And for an open source project, the only way that I've been able to, to deal with it when I'm trying to do something systematic like this is to say, okay, an open source project, it's not like a GitHub repo and it's not even like a group of guys, right? Like it's not like core because that's very permeable. The people that are actively contributing to the, the core uh, implementation of Bitcoin um, are not the same people this week that they were last week, right? Like some of them have died. Some of them have just lost interest and a lot of new people have showed up and that's a very fluid sort of group, right? Um, on any open source project. So, so what is it? And I think that open source projects are missions, right? So if we applied this to something like MySQL, which is open source, uh, an open source database project, the mission was to create a good database, right? And if somebody was going to attack that project and try to prevent it 
being successful, they would try to prevent it from creating a, a good database. It wouldn't matter if somehow they deleted that repo because people would just create a new repo. Or if somebody like trademarked the name, for example, of MySQL, like the MySQL guys are going to be like, whatever, I don't care. Now it's, you know, Fred SQL, right? Because it's, it's not important to anybody that uses the software or the people that work on it. They're trying to accomplish a task. They have a problem. They want to build the tool that that scratches that itch, that solves that problem. Um, and so, if you so that's that's my thinking because I have done this sort of work for open source projects before. If you bring that thinking to Bitcoin, a lot of the things that people are freaked out about and don't quite understand about Bitcoin go away, right? Like to me, because I just came in with that attitude because of having applied it to other projects. Bitcoin's a mission. It's a mission to create secure money. And uh, so all the things that you could do to, to maybe thwart Bitcoin, you really have to thwart the mission of creating secure money, um, not like, uh, I don't know, again, attack like a specific uh, group of people because they're, they're not Bitcoin, right? Like if every single core developer right now disappeared, I don't think Bitcoin would cease to exist. I think it would still keep on chugging just fine. Um, so... Yeah, I think, and when you take that attitude, it, it does it it does justify a little bit more in people's minds. I think my perspective that all the altcoins are really attacks on Bitcoin, that they are an attempt to prevent the creation of a secure money, um, and they're not necessarily always conscious about that, but that is the that is the net effect, or that their mission is just silly compared to the mission of Bitcoin. Um, and I, I always like to point out to people that. Bitcoin isn't the first, right? Like the mission of Bitcoin started decades before 2009. Yeah. Um, and so if, even if you have some fork that's six months old, that's trying to take over 30 years worth of thought and action, uh, it's kind of laughable. Um, so yeah, and, I, I don't think like the, the other altcoins, I don't think that they actually do. I think that they're lying when they say what their mission is, right? Like when Ethereum says that it's trying to be a world computer, a technical person is going to look at that and be like, no, you're not. Like, I don't know what you're trying to do, but you're not trying to be a world computer because you can't be that dumb and that smart at the same time, right? Yes. Um, and uh, the, the reason that I would say that they're they're an attack on the mission this comes back to just economics. So money, the whole purpose of money is to be like, if you and I were going to trade bananas for cantaloupes, the, the point of money is to be a third asset in play, right? A third object that both of us tend to store and tend to keep. And, um, and as a result of that, it would lubricate that trade, right? Like if I don't want cantaloupes, I'll take your money. And if you don't want bananas, you'll take my money, right? Um, so we're, we're able to actually have transactions that we wouldn't otherwise be able to have. And we end up being able to do all of our accounting in this one thing. And so money is a, um, money isn't like an object, right? It's not something the government prints. It's a way of using an object, right? It's a way of using something that exists. So we could use bananas for money, but they would be a poor money. But if we did, that would mean that, uh, that it is the easiest thing to sell among the group of people that we trade with. And it's also, um, it's also like basically one side of every trade would be bananas. Right. And so if, uh, if you understand that to be the definition of money, there can only be one thing that does that. Otherwise it's just barter, right? Like we're back to just bananas and cantaloupes 
we don't really need a third single thing. If we have a third five other things, then that's just like, you know, trading bananas, cantaloupes, horses, and, and sheep, right? Like that's not, the money isn't in play. Well, the market is always trying to find that one thing. So if, if you're at a stage where three things are used as money, just wait a few years, it'll get, it'll get whittled down to one thing, as long as it's a free market. That's what I think. Uh, the market's always trying to find the dominant medium of exchange. Yeah. I mean, you could say that, but like economists would say that if you have three things that are in play as money, you you don't have money, you have a barter economy. So you may have three things that are commonly used to store value um, or three things that are commonly used in exchanges, but there is kind of a moment in, um, in history for any civilization or any group of people that trade in the mind of an economist where they move from a barter economy to a money-based economy. And that by definition is the moment where they coalesce on that one thing. Um, right. And so if, if Bitcoin's mission is to create a secure money, uh, you could say Bitcoin's mission is to create a secure one thing. Right. And mm -hmm. if, uh, so simply by the act of creating three or four or five other things, um, you're, you're slowing that mission. Now, if you created that, a, a competitor that was actually better, right? Like if Ethereum was actually like, they say that it's a, uh, what do they say? It's a world computer, but you and I both know what they're really saying is this is as good as Bitcoin. Plus it supports smart contracts, right? It's as good as Bitcoin. Plus it does this other stuff and they won't really say that because they know it's laughable, but that's really their only play. Right. And that's why people invest in it because they think they think it is actually secure, right? It's this decentralized secure ledger. Plus it supports uh, more features, right? Yeah. So, so what they're really trying to do, if they were honest, is they're trying to create a replacement to Bitcoin. They're trying to create a secure money. Um, and I would say if they actually were better than Bitcoin, then to me, that would just be Bitcoin, right? Like if they, if Ethereum was not like all marketing fluff and very little technical capability, I would say, oh, that's just, you know, you can call it Ethereum, whatever. I don't care, right? Because I see Bitcoin as trying to create a secure money. And if that's a, a more functional uh, and still secure money, that's going to be adopted faster than Bitcoin is going to be adopted. So that is now, you know, that's that's the difference between Bitcoin and B money, right? Like it would go B money and then Bitcoin and then Ethereum, right? It's all the same thing to me. It's all just a mission. Um, but the reason that I would say it's an attack is that it's laughable, right? Like it doesn't, they know it doesn't have the potential because they know it's insecure and weak in a lot of ways. Um, and so then all it really does is it slows the, the mission, right? It slows the adoption of a secure money. Because if it was better, it would actually accelerate it, right? We would jump off Bitcoin. We'd all be on Ethereum. You know, we'd get off the dollar even faster and, uh, and that mission would be accomplished. Uh, but if it's another one that's actually just marketing fluff and garbage and confusion, and it just causes, you know, a lot of fraud in the network or in the system, then it slows down that mission. And that's why I'd call it an attack. I see. Yeah. So, uh, I agree with you that most of these are attacks and what, after I've started listening to you speak about these things, um, because. I mean, an attack, scam, same same word, but it, it means a lot different. Um, I think it, it sinks in uh, differently to people. So uh, I like that you use the word attack. Um, I would call them scams or even um, just false claims. Like um, these people, I think all altcoins are just preying on 
technologically illiterate people. Uh, and so that's, I mean, it's almost an attack on people's wallets, uh, just as much it is as it is an attack on Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's both. I think it's fraud. Um, and your definition of fraud is spot on, man. It's uh, it's making false claims and then selling it to somebody, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's using deception when you when you do an economic exchange. And so it's, it's absolutely fraud. Um, and if we had a functional justice system, these people would be making restitution payments for the rest of their lives, um, if, if not worse. Um, and since we don't, you know, we'll, we'll see how long they get away with it. But, um, but one of the things that I like to just sit back and think about sometimes is if we do end up with a secure money, um, I did a, uh, I did a human threat model also, uh, a couple months after I finished the Bitcoin threat model, um, cause I was really inspired by this idea. Like if we did actually have a secure money, that would be so, uh, game changing. It would be more game changing than when the industrial revolution made, um, cattle or chattel slavery, uh, no longer cost effective. Right. Mm -hmm. And we don't, we don't really have chattel slavery in the world anymore. And it's because of that, because now we have machines and just beating somebody on the back to try to get them to work. You end up putting more energy into the system than you can get out when you could invest in machines instead. Um, and so if, uh, if we actually have a secure money, that would be a game changer where these other forms of slavery, like socialist slavery would just no longer be in play. Like nobody would ever have the motivation to set up a socialist, uh, system, uh, if there's a secure money, because you can't really steal it from people. And that's the whole point of socialism or, uh, central banking, right? Like nobody's going to even attempt to set up a central bank and defraud all of the depositors by printing money in the background and giving it to their buddies, um, because it just won't be possible. So all those, all those, uh, sort of modern day versions of slavery, and certainly they're, they're, um, they're, they're better for the victims in a lot of ways. Um, although sometimes they're worse actually, but in general, they, they tend to be better than, than chattel slavery. Um, they still ultimately come down to using force and violence to take people's stuff, to, to steal their productivity and to make, make you work for, uh, somebody that's attacking you. Right. Um, and, uh, so if Bitcoin is successful in its mission, then, uh, then all of those incentives go away how long would it take before we did have a functional justice system? And is it possible that guys like Charlie Lee and Roger Ver um, are actually going to face that justice system, right? Is it going to, if, if we, uh, you know, is it going to take more than 40 or 50 years to repair the justice system enough to have these guys actually uh, pay for the crimes they're committing right now? I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a very pleasant thought that that's a possibility. I hope it keeps them up at <laughs> night every once in a while. I was just talking with a friend this morning about this, and um, I say that it's a, it's an efficiency question. Like, um, you know, slavery went away because it was inefficient, and Bitcoin is the most efficient money. It's the thing that's going to make everything. I mean, the efficiency gains, you could list hundreds and hundreds, and you'd just be scratching the surface of what a sound money like Bitcoin would bring to the world. So, um yeah, it's an efficiency question. I think Bitcoin cannot help but to win. At least the Bitcoin mission cannot help but to take over the world. And man, where will we be when all of these efficiencies are realized? Um, for the justice question, um, man, I think that I don't think these guys are going to get um, they're not going to face any justice unless somebody takes it upon themselves 
to somehow take care of the justice. Um, I, I'm, I lean more on the vigilante side than I do on the insurance side. And I've heard you talk about um, like a justice system that's, you know, based on the, you know, freedom and uh, insurance and kind of um, entangling insur insurance with different people. And uh, I, I fall, I think that's very viable, but I fall a little bit more on the peer to peer justice type of system. Yeah, I think um, there's some problems with that, though. So, so let's imagine in the future, uh, Bitcoin replaces uh, um, the kind of cr crony capitalism that we have right now, and we don't have somebody showing up at your door, you know, with a gun uh, saying, "Give me your stuff" through property taxes or whatever. Um, let's just imagine for a minute that even though those things are possible. And what I do in the human threat model is I walk through all the different ways that you can try to systematically extract wealth from people, which is my definition of slavery. I think that's a, that's the right definition of slavery. Um, even though it's, it's possible to do something like that, it would have to be, like you say, cost-effective, right? Um, so let's imagine that it's not cost-effective. So these things don't happen on a, on a systematic basis anymore. Um, if, if that was the case, and somebody committed a crime against your neighbor, um, there wouldn't be there wouldn't be like a local mafia to take care of that. And so, if you're if you're thinking that you would go and you'd track that person down, you know, you and just like happened in the old west, right? Um, you and the the 15 other people uh, in the surrounding area jump in your pickup trucks and uh, go out and grab this guy. Um, there's some downsides with that, and one of them is that um, you would want to you as the person jumping in your pickup truck would want to be protected against anybody coming after you, right? You wouldn't want to be Hatfields and McCoys. Uh, you would want to know that you were doing everything you could to keep yourself safe in the pursuit of justice. And one of the things that that would look like is you would want to have, um, you'd want to have somebody else like a third party, probably doing the investigation, somebody that has like a good reputation in the community for being uh, a trustworthy investigation source. Right. And that's basically, private policing, right? And we have a lot of, we actually have more private policing in the United States than we have public policing already because over the last 30 years, the corruption has pushed so much money into hiring your own uh, personal defense and personal investigation because uh, they just, they're not, you know, surprise, surprise, the post office and the, the police are not very good at their job. Um, so you would want to have private policing, right? And it wouldn't be necessarily very expensive, especially if you did it through insurance instead of, because these things don't happen very often. So if you just paid a monthly fee, 50 bucks a month, most people would probably choose to do that, um, to have access to uh, to an, a criminal investigator when they needed it, right? Um, and so you're, you, you immediately start going, okay, what would just be like what normal, regular, modern people would do to solve these problems? And you get pretty quick out of dudes in pickup trucks with shotguns to professional services that you pay a monthly fee to deal with these unusual occurrences when they come up. Um, because it's just it's cheaper and it's safer and it's better. So I don't I, I don't know exactly what that would look like in a in a free market. I think you know we have hints um, and we know that it wouldn't be weird, right? Like there's the free market doesn't come up with weird solutions because people don't like weird solutions because um, by definition it's unpleasant, right? Um, so I my guess is that it you know and that goes back to actually murder Rothbard. Um, that's not uh, none of these these ideas that I've said in a while are original. Um, 
but uh but yeah i i think i think it would probably look something like that um but on the other hand if you if you were uh, very rural or you were very poor you might just jump in the pickup truck and go deal with the problem <laughs> and uh and then you know if somebody had a claim on you because you had done something that was unjust maybe they're paying for a security service to come do an investigation right, right. Um, at some point there'd probably be some pretty professional people involved um or you know sometimes problems get solved in ways that are unpleasant just because people are poor and they're they're solving the problems as efficiently as they can because they're still trying to feed their bellies um i think that that would also reduce drastically over time um, because we'd obviously be a lot wealthier and prosperous uh if I don't know, something like 60% of our productivity wasn't, uh, wasn't being used to drop bombs on Syria right now. All right. Well, that, that was a good segue into my last question here for you. Um, you mentioned Murray Rothbard and do you have, uh, any other authors or books, uh, that you would like to mention? Yeah, actually, I just did an interview uh, with Tim May, um, who's an early cypherpunk. He's he's the uh, co-founder of the cypherpunk mailing list, and he wrote something called the Cyphernomicon, which is it's it's a FAQ uh, of the cypherpunk movement, um, and it's it's very easy to read, very easy to understand, and I would definitely recommend taking a look at that. Um, the, uh, the the phenomenon of Bitcoin is, like you said, not something that's happened overnight. It's been a 30 plus year project, and uh, that's sort of one of the founding documents of the project. So if you're at all interested in Bitcoin, you should definitely read that. Um, I think that most of those ideas, if not all of those ideas from an, a non-technology side do tie back to Marie Rothbard, although it, it sounds like maybe they were proxied through um, through the Freedmans. Um, who I'm not as big of a fan of. Um, and I've, I've gone back uh, and tried to look at the timing of when these guys wrote the stuff that they did. And I'm more and more confident that Murray Rothbard deserves credit for originating these ideas. But um, yeah, I would also recommend a book called For a New Liberty. Um, if you know, you've been interested in the Ron Paul movement or libertarianism at all, that's sort of the founding document um, of the libertarian movement. Um, and uh, it's, it's, again, very easy to read, and it's a great introduction to economics and, and government. Um, and then, uh, let's see, for, for Bitcoin specifically, check out my threat model. Um, I have to plug my own stuff, right? Uh, so btcthreats.com. I do think that's actually a great place to start for people because if you go through and just look at that table of contents, it will help you understand uh, the way that you need to critically think about the altcoins. And if, if you just take that document and you apply it to something like Litecoin or Ethereum or Ripple, um, you're going to say, whoa, these are threats that are not well addressed uh, from, from these other things. And if the whole point is to create something that's uh, unhackable, right, something that's digital and secure, which is mind-blowing, if the point is to do that, uh, then, uh, then hopefully these bullet points will help you see that, uh, that Ripple is not doing that. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd check out those three things and then, you know, hit me up at, uh, on Twitter. Um, I'm at weatherman. I am uh, weatherman. I am sorry. Cool. And then, um, could you tell me a little bit about your math bot? I know that's recently launched in beta or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a project actually, I am really excited about it. Thanks for asking about it, man. Um, so about two years ago, um, I got exposed to Common Core, which is this just atrocious way to teach math that um, 
that the United States adopted, like it's, it's almost like one of those like things that happened in a dark room overnight. Like everybody just woke up and all of a sudden common core was everywhere. Um, it's a, it's a way of teaching math that is like the, the nicest thing that you could say about it is that it's radical and it was never tested. Right. So they didn't do pilot programs. They didn't try it with 15 kids and see if they all hate life. Um, oh, I've or, seen, I've seen the worksheets. They are confusing. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. even. Right. Yeah. And math is math is logic and it's incremental logic. So if something's confusing in math, by definition, it's a terrible teacher. It's not a terrible student, right? Uh, you do counting and then you do adding and then you do subtracting and multiplying and dividing and then you can go to exponents. And so all of those are very incremental steps. Like you, you start with just one number and then you can go to two or three bigger numbers, smaller numbers. You can introduce decimal places. And, but by definition, it is a very systematic, slow build of new tricks that work. Right. Um, and, uh, that is, let's just say, uh, to keep it short, that is not what common core is. It, it's like, if you were to, uh, design something to make people hate math, uh, common core would, you, I don't, I really don't think you could do better. I mean, it's like, it's brilliant and it's evil. Um, so anyway, about two years ago, I, I ran into this thing and, uh, I was just pissed off for about two days and trying to think of, uh, uh, you know, ways to deal with it. And so I came up with this idea that basically, there are parts of math that are redundant and boring, but what if you just programmed a robot to do those parts for you? Um, then we would take out all the boring parts of math. We'd also introduce computer programming, but computer programming in like pictorial, right? So you're not, you're, you're like dragging a, a block over that says walk forward. You're not talk, talk, typing like, you know, funked walk or anything like that. Um, and, uh, and so, by doing that, the idea is that you you program the robot to solve these math problems and you learn math uh, incidentally. Um, so you're trying to, uh, for example, if I wanted you to learn how to use a saw, right? You're like an eight-year-old kid and I want you to learn how to use a saw. I could say, hey, I'm going to help you build the bench, right? And I'm going to teach you how to cut boards to build the bench. And you would learn a saw or you would learn how to saw wood and it would be very enjoyable because you'd be solving problems and you'd be productive. Um, the way that common core works is more like, and even before common core worked like this, um, uh, because we abandoned Euclid's elements, um, like Einstein learned math the same way that Jesus would have learned math if he was ever taught math. Right. So like 2000 years, it was this one book, um, called Euclid's elements. And it was great. Um, when, when our generation were kids, they had abandoned that and went with this terrible, uh, terrible math program. But, uh, common core is far, far worse uh, than anything that we were exposed to as kids. Um, but, uh, but all of the stuff that's bad is more like handing a kid a two by four and a saw and saying, I want you to cut 400 pieces of wood, right? It's like, it's not productive. It's not fun. <laughs> it's not problem solving. So the idea of MathBot is that you would, you will learn math, but you will learn it as you're trying to solve problems. So it's like incidental, right? Like you learn how to cut wood incidentally to building a bench. You learn math incidentally to solving mazes and, um, you know, moving objects around the screen or drawing or trying to get a rocket to hit a certain point, uh, in space. So, so that's the idea. Um, and I actually, I abandoned it about six months ago because I had worked on it for, you know, a year plus, and I got to the point of putting it in the hands of about 200 kids. And the problem that I ran into was in order for this to scale, I have, it has to be like motivating 
on the screen, right? Like mm-hmm. if, if the only kids that are playing it and enjoying it and finishing it are kids that have parents that are kind of creating motivation, like I'll buy you an ice cream, um, <laughs> then it, it doesn't work. And, uh, that's, that's exactly what, uh, what it ended up being, right? Like all of the kids that had parents that were kind of involved and that created a little bit of an incentive, they just blew through it and they did great. Um, but that's, you know, maybe 20% of the kids that I did testing with. And that's just not, it's not good enough for something to go to really scale. Um, I want this thing to scale to the point where people learn uh, math by using it. And the whole narrative that public schools teach math is just like taken out of the picture, right? Like this is just so fun. Everybody uses it. It's, uh, it's really enjoyable. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like it, it, uh, it just replaces public school teachers teaching math. Cause I think that's the way to fix the problem because they're not motivated to do it. Right. Um, and for that to work, it has to be like something that is like, uh, inherently motivating. So my initial thought was let's make it so fun that it actually competes with angry birds. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's, you know, that's insane. That's not going to happen. Right? <laughs> it's so hard to build the game as good as angry birds that there's thousands of people doing it all the time. And they're not hindered by trying to add education into it. So, so I, I set it down and then about two months ago, it hit me that uh, Bitcoin could actually be the solution to this problem where if, your incentives. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. So I couldn't do this with credit cards because I, I would have too much fraud and I would have, uh, I wouldn't be able to do micropayments. But the idea is, let's say that your grandma wants Timmy to learn algebra. And, uh, so, so grandma spends $50 and, you know, uses something, you know, maybe grandma already has Bitcoin or she uses a service like BISC to buy Bitcoin. Um, hopefully not Coinbase, uh, shout out to those guys <laughs> for being bastards to WikiLeaks, but, um, yeah, so, so grandma gets a hold of 50 bucks of Bitcoin. She gives it to me. Um, I know that I have it, right. It's not like a credit card where she can take it back in six months if she wants to. Um, and then as Timmy passes levels, I give him a dollar or I give him 50 cents worth of Bitcoin. And so he's able to get, uh, he's able to get rewarded. And my hope is that, uh, the game will be fun enough, uh, with that additional incentive to where that'll, that'll be the whole package where the kids will just crank and, uh, just have, you know, have enough pleasure to actually learn math. Um, and I really want to go from where we're at right now, which is, um, we actually have in testing um, levels all the way through division, but I really want to be able to take it through calculus so that, you know, you know, somebody that, uh, that you want them to learn math, you just throw, throw 50 bucks at Bitcoin at MathBot, and they know it's setting there and it just motivates them to go out and get that money and, and uh, learn math in the process. That's so awesome. You know, I have kids and, and that's why that I definitely noticed that when you were talking about it and um, uh, my kids are going to be trying it out very shortly for sure. Awesome. Awesome. The first 10 levels are up. So if you go out to mathbot.com, uh, M-A-T-H-B-O-T.com, uh, you can sign up for free and play the first levels. It'll always be free to play all the levels. Um, so if you have kids and you want to buy them ice cream when they pass it and that's enough, great. Um, but if you want us to reward them automatically through Bitcoin, we'll have that capability at some point in the future. Um, but yeah, right now, I wouldn't say it's in beta. It's uh, maybe a little less than beta because we, we only have the first 10 levels of probably 200 that we'll build. Um, but, uh, but it is pretty fun. And I definitely love the feedback from anybody on, uh, on what they think of it. Cool. Cool. 
Yeah, that's a great, uh, going back to your reading list, that's a great reading list. And I just want to point out that that's something unique to Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin maximalists will be talking about things like this. And you won't find a eththreats.com. I'll tell you that much. No, but actually, if you want, I have a cursory security review uh, because oh, I couldn't bring myself to do a full security review of Ethereum because it's just such a freaking joke that I'd kill myself. Um, but uh, it is in a Google Doc. So if you hit me up on Twitter, um, again, it's Weatherman I am. I'll send you the link and uh, I'll send you the link too. Maybe we can throw it in the show notes page. Um, I've got a cursory security review of uh, three or four of the more popular altcoins um, and then like a kind of a top 10 tech review um doc too so we can we can throw those in the show notes also i suppose awesome yeah thank you so much for joining me um this will be up in a few days but um uh, do you have any final words no no thanks man i i really appreciate you having me on um yours is one of the very few shows that i i like to listen to to keep up to speed on what's going on because you cover stuff that makes sense um not having to hear about like a shoulders and a gooseneck and uh, how that's going to affect the price for the next week. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it was great. I really appreciate you kind of getting the word out about the threat model. I think that's uh, um, that's going to help Bitcoin security for for more and more Bitcoin stakeholders to kind of know how this stuff works. Yeah, I think it definitely belongs in that reading list that you gave. And you said you were plugging your own thing, but I definitely think it belongs there. I've, I've forked LOPs. Um, resources page. So I have my nice. own resources page and um, uh, I'm pretty sure I put the threats threat model on there. If I haven't, it's going on there very soon. Cool. Uh, it depends on when you forked it, but LOP has my stuff on there too. I think it's, it's the second one uh, under security under his. So I, I didn't get the first spot, but I figured that's all right. since it's his own. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you. Awesome. Thanks a lot, man. All right.